0: So We have this fairly bizarre passage uh, this afternoon, and we're going to try and unpack it a bit in the next couple of minutes. Um, who's heard of the phrase, the writings on the wall? Who's heard of that phrase? Put your hand up if you've heard of that phrase, the writings on the wall. Does anyone know what it means? Anyone want to have a guess at sharing what they think it means? It's final? It's, final. it's, inevitable. it's inevitable? Any other guesses? Yeah, so I guess the writing on the wall can be summed up um, by... Have we got any Dad's Army fans here? Just one? Okay, everyone else is looking at me like, what is Dad's Army? I love Dad's Army. But I think um, the writing on the wall can be summed up by Private Fraser. We're doomed. The writing on the wall, yeah, it's inevitable. It's a final thing. Your fate is sealed. um, And it's generally not a good thing. We're doomed. You're doomed. You are doomed. the writing on the wall, you are doomed. So my first thought when I read that passage um, last week was, wow, how much do they drink at this party. Um, But actually, on um, on first appearance, that's what I thought. But as you start to unpack it a bit, there's actually quite a bit more going on than just a big drunken uh, degenerative party with a drunken vision about impending doom. Um, But let's have a bit of background about this guy called Belshazzar. Um, At first reading, it seems that he is the son of Nebuchadnezzar. But there's actually no historical evidence to suggest that Belshazzar was the son of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. Actually, scholars think that Belshazzar um, was just the regent king and he wasn't actually related by blood to Nebuchadnezzar. He was just his predecessor rather than his actual biological son. And we aren't given much else about this guy called Belshazzar, but we seem to just jump straight into the story at this feast. And um, I think he was throwing this feast for maybe a number of reasons. Um, Firstly, because he knows that the Persians are at his gates in the city and they're about to invade. And as you heard in the story, later in the night, the king was killed. So I think he's thrown his party, uh, maybe because he's trying to rally his great lords around him for one final big battle. Maybe he was trying to distract his noble lords from the impending doom. Uh, maybe you've heard of the saying, feast today for tomorrow we will die. Um, personally, I think that was the one he was thinking of as he drank so freely at the feast that evening because he knew of his impending doom as the Persians lay outside. And uh, when we read this chapter, I think there's three things that we can think a bit further on. The first one, the profaning of the holy cups of gold and silver from the temple in Jerusalem. Secondly, oh yeah, um, a hand appearing out of nowhere and writing on the wall. That's quite a big one. And thirdly, um, the interpretation of what was actually written. Now. At home, at my parents' house where I grew up, we have two sets of cutlery. I don't know if you may have as well. Uh, We have our everyday sets of cutlery that we use every day. And it doesn't matter if we drop them or break them. Uh, It doesn't matter if they get worn down for everyday use. Uh, But my mum also had a cabinet which no one was allowed into. Even my dad was not allowed to touch this cabinet. And in this cabinet was all her precious stuff, including her finest set of china that she would inherited from um, down the generations in her family. And... um, it was only maybe gotten out maybe once or twice a year for really special occasions. And I remember coming down, I'm the oldest of four, I'm a bit of a rabble to our family. And I remember coming down for breakfast one morning and our mum sat around the table, we had a bit of a family meeting and she said, right, your dad has got guests coming from America today to visit him for business and they're coming back to our house for dinner. You will be on your best behaviour. Now, that is like waving a red flag in front of a bull, which are actually four children. Because <laughs> we took that as our signal to mess around with our mum all day. So we would take out the china and just pretend to drop it, and she would absolutely lose it. <laughs> and these American guests turned up, and for a few moments while we were upstairs hiding, they thought they were in for a lovely, peaceful dinner. And then we all came downstairs, and that illusion was quickly blown out the water. I don't think my mum got the china out to show off, but there was definitely an air of decadence around when we had this china out. I think, on one level, Belshazzar called the chalices, he called for the chalices to be brought out because he wanted to show off to his noble lords. Look how powerful I am. Look how rich I am. But I think there was also something else going on when he called these cups out. I think he was showing a complete disrespect to God. He was showing a complete disrespect to God from where the, tum- the temple, because the cups had come from God's temple. In, um, have you got any footballers in? Hands If you play football, I know some of you play football. In football, or actually in general life as well, it's widely seen that spitting at someone is vile, and it's, a, it's the complete utter sign of disrespect. Um, and I think that's what's what happening, what happening when Belshazzar is calling these cups out He is spitting at God. He's saying, I have absolutely no respect for you. He's challenging God's sovereignty. And it's at this moment in the story that the hand appears and writes on the wall. And Belshazzar is so gripped by fear that he loses control of his bodily functions. And um, I'll let you think a bit further about what that might mean. Um, (laughs) But that's pretty understandable, I think. If I was at a party and I saw a hand appear out of nowhere and write on the wall, I think I would also be a bit terrified, wouldn't you? I think you'll be uh, mad not to be a bit scared if you, didn't, if you saw that sort of thing. But we can't write this off as just a drunken hallucination because other people see it. It seems that like the writing was actually on the wall. Now, I think there's normally two sort of responses when we hear stories like this in the Bible. Um, and the first is that some people instantly roll their eyes and ask this question, Really? Haven't we moved on? Haven't we grown up from all these uh, past magical, mythical thinking? Haven't we outgrown these fairy tales? Aren't these the exact sort of claims that turn so many people away from the Bible? Other people might respond, well, if the Bible says a hand appeared out of nowhere and wrote on the wall, then that's what happened. You know, If you deny this story ever happened, then what's to stop you denying loads of other stories in the Bible? And if you deny this one and choose to believe others, aren't you essentially picking and choosing what you want to believe? What do I think? Well, I don't actually think it matters whether you believe point one or whether you're point two or maybe there's even a point three that I um, haven't thought of. I don't think it matters that much. I think if we spend all our time concentrating on the hand, we can miss the larger point of the story, and that is that a king was a bad king, that he misused his power to treat people badly. He was a poor steward of his kingdom. His time was up. I do, though, just want to reflect a bit more on that. A while ago, I came across a quote um, by a pastor that I like to read, and I found it a really challenging quote, and I just want to read it to you now. If you sign up to point one, then what are the criteria for the denial of this happening? Do we only affirm things that can be proven in a lab? Do we only believe things that we can have huge amounts of evidence for? Can we only affirm things that make sense to us? Are we close to everything we can't explain? If we reject all odd things about stories because we have made up our minds that these sort of things don't happen, then we are running the risk of shrinking the world down to what we can see and comprehend. And what fun is that? And that quote constantly challenges me. I think what I mean is that in the Western world that we live in, we are really bad at dealing with mystery because we want everything to be black and white. We want everything to be clear cut. But life just isn't like that. We have to be able to hold intention, mystery and enter, and, and enter into it without fear of it. And in this chapter and in the whole book of Daniel, God speaks through riddles, pictures, metaphors and mystery. And Jesus also does this in large amounts. Think about the parables that Jesus tells. He is inviting the listener to ask questions about the story. It's why the most powerful tool in evangelism aren't black and white, clear-cut answers, but questions. Think of the alpha symbol, a big question mark, an invitation to bring questions and have them explored. The gospel that reaches people is one that invites people to treasure the question. So rather than a neat and tidy, pre-packaged five steps to faith, maybe we need to walk with people in their questions, to share the journey with them, to invite people into God's mystery, to invite them into an encounter with the living God. It's through the parables and it's through the mystery that people are drawn in. And I think we need to be a lot better at holding mystery and not being afraid of it. Okay, so the interpretation. The interpretation. There's this poem here by a guy called Gordon Bailey. Christmas, sacred. Christ, massacred. It depends where you draw the line. The most likely reason that the wise men couldn't interpret the writing on the wall is because it was written as one continuous stream of letters without breaks in. And it takes the Queen coming in and telling everyone that there's this guy called Daniel who's full of a divine Holy Spirit who she thinks can interpret it. Just a little side note on the queen. The queen probably, the queen definitely wasn't married to Belshazzar. She wasn't the queen married to the king. Um, this was probably the queen mother. And I think it's interesting that she wasn't at the banquet. It's not written in the text at all, but I wonder if the queen um, had seen the foolishness of the ways of Belshazzar. And the reason she called Daniel to the feast, because she knew and believed in the one true God, as Daniel did. That's not written in the text. That's just me wondering about that. So Daniel rocks up. And Belshazzar tries to bribe him, to give an interpretation. But Daniel turns this down. Though later on, he actually accepts or receives the offer from the king. And Daniel goes on to give a pretty damning speech full of rebuke against Belshazzar. Um, and then he gives the interpretation. And it ain't looking good for Belshazzar. Just imagine Private Fraser in your mind again. You're doomed. That is the message that Daniel interprets to Belshazzar. And actually Belshazzar gets that message pretty quickly. But after he's got that message, he gives Daniel what Daniel had refused. And I was wondering, why would a guy, why would Daniel um, be offered this and then refuse it and then just moments later have this gift offered to him again and he accepted it this time. I I wonder if he took that gift um, afterwards because he knew the impending doom of Belshazzar and he thought, well, I might as well have this gift because in a matter of hours it's not going to be relevant at all because there will be a new king. The position and the gifts would be meaningless. Okay, so when I read this chapter, I'm reminded that it does matter how we live our lives here and now. Belshazzar is judged by God because of the way he lived, because of the way he used and abused the power that he had. When I went to Australia in 2014, I remember getting on the plane um, and I was sitting, I was really excited I wanted to talk to everyone I met, Um, but I sat next to this couple who had no interest in talking to me. Uh, They fell asleep within a matter of minutes and if you've ever been on a plane, they slept through takeoff, and that is impressive. They were pretty old, but that is still impressive. Um, it's a 12 hour flight to Singapore where we were changing over. They didn't say a single word to each other for 12 hours. They didn't eat any of the food. They didn't watch a single film or TV or anything. They didn't read a book. And I was pretty annoyed because I was really excited and I wanted to talk to someone about this trip I was going on. And um, it reminded me of this talk I'd heard um, a number of years ago. I heard this guy speaking once and, um, at this um, conference and he was speaking as if his faith was a ticket out of this world that we live in and he didn't want to engage in anything going on around him like the couple on the plane. He just got on there, sat down and thought, well, I don't have to do anything now. I've got my ticket to heaven. I've said the prayer. I've done the packaged five steps to faith. I'm saved and I'm going to sit back and just enjoy the flight. But being a follower of Jesus isn't just about getting your ticket to heaven and ignoring the rest of the world that you live in. What we learn from this chapter is that it really does matter how we live our lives here and now. It really does matter how we use the power that we have. And sometimes that can be a really overwhelming thought because of the way we think about power. But I just want to wrap up now with a clip from uh, The Hobbit about power. It's the small everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keep the darkness at bay. And Jesus showed us that the best way to live, his life is the best example we have of how we should live in this world. He shows us that power isn't found in the sword or in the ruling of empires, but in picking up the towel and washing our neighbors' feet. That's how we should seek to live. These values here that we have as a church, to love generously, to act justly, to forgive swiftly, to include selflessly, to practice humility. That's how we should live. What we can learn from this passage in Daniel is how we should live our lives and that it does matter about how we live. Amen.